Hi, we've decided to sneak in this bonus episode featuring London Grammar. It's in a slightly updated format for those of you who are regular listeners. Less songs are played, but I'll put direct links to these songs in the show notes. As always, feel free to email me at celine.toblocky, T-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-E-Y, at undertheradarmag.com to share your thoughts on this episode. You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. It's, it's kind of about gaslighting, really. You know, when women are just made, they're worn down, they become so insecure and then sometimes they're kind of, you know, it's easy to make out like they're crazy or they're being dramatic or they're overreacting. And that is what that song is about. And it's just about being like, yeah, I know that feeling and I know what's going on. This is Hannah from London Grammar. Our album Californian Soil came out on April the 16th and it's on Ministry of Sound, which is under the umbrella of Sony. In the band with me is Dominic Major, who is 30, and Daniel Rothman, who is 31, turning 32 this year. Hannah Reed, frontwoman of the award-winning British band, will also turn 32 this year. The band came together at Nottingham University in England over 10 years ago. They signed their record deal while Hannah and Dan were still finishing their final year exams. Dot, who was a year behind them, spent his last year balancing their live shows in London with finishing coursework in Nottingham. Their quick ascent up the British charts and then achieving hits around the globe meant they've had to grow up quickly and navigate a music industry that hasn't always had their best interests at heart. For years, they did countless interviews describing London grammar as a democracy. Each had their individual strengths, and everyone took their turn at playing the lead at different points during the songwriting process. But with this third album, Hannah has confidently taken on the role as leader of the band and wrote this decidedly feminist pop anthem. She should be somebody else I know you think the stars align for you And not for her as well I understand, I can't admit That I have felt those things myself I saw the way you left behind her back When you fucked somebody else Lord, it's a There's a palpable sense of confidence in the songwriting. But before we find out what prompted this recent change, Hannah tells us about her childhood in London and how her debilitating stage fright had already foiled her creative ambitions once. I grew up in West London in a place called Acton and I have a sister. I mean, my childhood was kind of interesting, I guess. You know, it wasn't perfect, but no childhood is perfect. But I definitely 
got a lot of art from my parents, for sure. My sister is very artistic. I went to a school kind of around the corner from where I grew up and I did grow up in quite a nice bubble, actually, in lots of ways. My dad is an architect and studied art at university when he was young. So he's really kind of like the artist of the family. And then my mum is a teacher, but she was probably the one more who had all the CDs, had Whitney Houston's ultimate collection and loads of Motown CDs. And she has a great voice and she sings a lot. She's a great dancer, you know, that kind of character. (laughs) A perfect day for me as a kid probably would have been at some point going for a walk with my dad because we used to have very long, deep conversations Um, And I think just going to school, I I was really lucky. I loved my school and I had a great drama teacher there and I loved doing theatre. I started writing songs. I do remember being very young. So I think like 12, maybe younger. They just probably weren't very good. But then I also do have memories of being really young, like I think like six or seven and teaching myself how to play the piano and like coming up with my own symbols for each note. I think I was quite a nerdy child. (laughs) I had lessons from a Welsh folk singer, you know, very short lunchtime lessons with her. But I did later find out that she, I think, had protected my voice because I always used to want to sing pop songs with her and she would never let me. She would only let me sing folk songs and voices that just were very pure. And I wish I could thank her for that now because I think I probably got more from that than I realised. It was part of school so I was like 13, 14, 15 and then I think maybe around 16, 17 I then was more interested in talking about boys and I I think I stopped going to my classes. (laughs) I think my whole childhood I did And I only understand this now as an adult, but I always felt like I didn't quite fit in. And I did have friends. I had lots of friends, but I still kind of didn't quite fit in. And I think I suffered from quite bad anxiety because of that, which is something that I still struggle with. Now that I do what I do for a living, I now understand. I think my brain processes information differently. So I think I kind of... You know, I love doing the theatre in school, but I did struggle a bit in class to absorb what I was being taught. I remember, you know, teachers not liking me very much. Some teachers, I was always the child who just forgot everything, um, forgot her homework. Yeah, so I just had a general feeling of kind of slight loneliness, I think, maybe, which is something I don't really like to think about. But I think you can hear that in London Grammar's music. I've walked these miles, but I've walked them straight like You'll never know what it's like to be fine I'm wasting my young years It doesn't matter Yours is such a special voice. When did you first realize you could sing and sing that way? I know you've mentioned singing for a choir teacher and then for Daniel, and that seems like quite a gap. Yeah. 
So I was always, always singing and writing songs and playing the guitar and playing the piano. And I was always, but it was more about self-expression. And I knew that I could sing in tune, but I didn't think there was anything special about my voice. And it was really only until I uh, met Daniel, but he was actually in another band with another singer and another musician. And he quit that band to come and start a band with me, which went down very badly. But he booked in a gig and was like, you're doing a gig. He was like, you're actually, there's something special here. So if it wasn't for for Dan, I don't think I would have had this career. You talked about drama a little bit. So I understand you actually won a drama scholarship and then kind of the stage fright, you know, kind of got the better of you. And then you go to university and you were planning to be a psychotherapist. Do you mm. think it's ironic now that you have this career that makes you still deal with your stage fright? It's like you can't run away from your destiny. Yeah, it is the stupidest thing. Like, I won't swear on your podcast, but I want to swear right now. I'm just like, why was I given a gift that I was meant to share if I was not given the other gift of being like Beyonce alongside it? Although who knows, maybe she gets really nervous. I don't know. But I don't think she does somehow. But yeah, I'll always have that. Um, Dame Judy Dench, I remember reading something that she said where she was just like, every opening night of any first play I've ever done or movie that she is just sick with nerves and that she's just like, why do I do this to myself? That's it. I'm never doing it ever again. And actually that made me feel loads better because I'm just like, she's Dame Judy Dench. Like it doesn't get any better than her. Like she is the cream of the crop. You guys were playing for about a year before Dot came mm. on the scene. And what was that like? I feel like with the two of you, you've, you've made this realization, then why did you have somebody else come in? Was it something mm. that you felt you needed something extra special in the sound? Or was it like a chemistry thing as well? It was kind of both. I mean, I think when you're sort of young and starting out in a band, it was more like, we need a drummer. <laughs> and then um, it was actually Dan's wife, Lara, who's also a very good friend of mine, who met Dot because she thought that, I mean, she was completely in a relationship with Dan at this time, but she thought Dot was kind of cute. <laughs> and she was a university rep and decided to take, basically as a rep, very long-winded story, you have to take a first year to the rep ball. It's like a tr tradition. And so mm -hmm. she took Dot. And then she discovered that, yeah, he was like this amazing multi-instrumentalist. And so she kind of set him up on a date with Dan ah. and there's a very different chemistry between Dan and Dot to the chemistry that I have with Dan and the chemistry that I have with Dot and it just changed things completely when he came along kind of took us up a level I think. So in those early days how did you guys sort of figure out what your sound would be. We've discussed that Dan heard your voice and you know, knew it was something that was special. And then he also knew that your voice kind of, it needed that space in a song. So it couldn't be filled with too many things in whatever kind of music you guys wound up doing. But that sort of moody, trip-hoppy, electro-pop sound that eventually emerges, it's such a fully realized sound and style. So I think I saw you live very, very early on when we lived in San Francisco at mm. the rickshaw stop. Oh, cool. Um, okay. And I was looking at the photos um, uh, yesterday because trying to remember what songs you sang that day. When I hear you guys on stage, it's almost like even at that stage, it was like almost like osmosis. It was effortless. 
But I'm sure you had moments where you guys must have kind of struggled to find the sound that worked for you. Yeah, I, I think that took some time. But we, we definitely always wanted to find a sound as a band. We were searching for something other than just the, the songs. And I remember that struggle so well on the first record. I remember having so much space in the music and then we would fill it up with other things and it would just never work. And it was just a back and forth and it was a nightmare. But but then once we kind of found that sound, I feel like now we're able to experiment underneath that umbrella. The buzz from the Metal and Dust EP was huge. The EP made the iTunes Top 5 chart in Australia and was pivotal in the success that followed around the world. With the release of new singles like Strong, which won an Ivo Novello Songwriting Award, and the haunting ballads Hey Now and Wasting My Young Years, If You Wait, their debut album was one of 2013's most eagerly anticipated albums. But behind the scenes, it wasn't all champagne and roses. Um, I always thought it sort of ironic during that first album stage when you, you're up there singing I'm Wasting My Young Years, which is a, just a beautiful song. Thank you. I always thought that it would, especially in the light of what was going on behind the scenes, that um, mm. it was interesting you were singing that, but really you were going headlong into adulthood with all these responsibilities of actually being quite a seasoned pop group where you were doing so many shows, you were touring around. When I saw you at a rickshaw stop, you didn't even have your debut album really? yet. Um, you know, wow. you were just at uh, Metal and Dust, you had the EP and a couple of the bigger songs were out, but you oh, didn't wow. have a debut album out yet. Yeah. And so, I mean, what was that whole kind of experience like? And obviously, it did take its toll mm. on you being on this kind of whirlwind but what was it like for you on the inside? Um, I don't remember a lot of it, which mm. is strange. I I do remember the first gig that we did in London and it was in front of, I think, about 500 people or something. And I remember being so scared about it um, because I just had never, I was not a seasoned performer in, in any way. We did do a few gigs, you know, in front of maybe a handful of people. We actually did do a lot of gigs in front of handfuls of people, but never more than nine, you know, including our mums, really, maybe. And so I remember that first gig just, unfortunately, I just have always had such terrible stage fright. And I don't know why, but I couldn't imagine my life carrying on after this gig and it's the scariest thing I've ever done mm. but I went and I did it and then I got used to that level of audience and then the audience became a thousand and then ten thousand and then you know, a few years later there were moments where it was twenty thirty thousand and that is no one's fault that's the way that I'm built and I think you know on this album it's now something that I've really had to kind of try and understand I'm like why why do I feel this way? Why do I have terrible stage fright? And But one thing that I think did happen to us, which is not my fault, is I do think 
I do think there was toxic masculinity around me, especially when we first started. It's a completely male dominated industry and we weren't looked after properly. So in that first album campaign, mm. I think we had the longest time I had at home was nine days in two and a half years. And there are, but there are some people that can do that, you know, and it's absolutely fine. It doesn't affect their voice. They just are machines. And there are some artists that really, really, really can't. And I think it's kind of obvious from that first album that I would be the kind of artist that can't. I started to kind of get really sick from it. Um, I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I now have fibromyalgia. Mm. Yeah, which I, I don't know whether maybe I would have developed that at some point as an adult anyway. So that I won't blame on anyone in, in particular. But I definitely, when I was really, really sick and there were, you know, some blood results that were coming back a bit abnormal. Um, but when when I then wasn't well, I was absolutely very highly pressurised into keeping going no matter what. And there are definitely... yeah. I think that's a shame and, and I don't want to sound like a victim. I'm so lucky to be in a band and I, I loved me- meeting all the fans and um, I also pushed myself to keep going because I there's a part of it that I did love, which was connecting, I think, to our fans and, and, and that whole part of it. But it it just, the music industry has done that to other people that have not actually fared so well. And it's glamorised once those people have become drug addicts and then are no longer with us. It's kind of a glamorised story, which I have a slight problem with. And so it was both. It was really bittersweet. It was amazing, but it did come at a bit of a cost. A handful of smaller shows and festival gigs got cancelled for health reasons, but none were as big as the one to Australia in 2014. In an interview with Australian newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, Hannah opened up about the pressure. She revealed that after only two days of rest at home, the band were expected to get on a plane to Japan for one show, and the next day, get on another plane to Australia. By that stage, she was so exhausted that she could hardly get out of bed, never mind make it to the airport where unfortunately her bandmates were waiting for her. You not getting on Mm. that plane to Australia, it must have felt awful. You know only too well who you're letting down, including yourself and your band and the fans and everything else. Did you just think, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore? Did did that come into your head? Yeah, it it did. Um, And... It is. It was just. That was just one of the worst days of my life, really. And that feeling of letting so many people down. I think the thing that always really struck me as well is that the organisation. I mean, no one seemed to be doing their job very well around us. So often things were booked in that we actually physically were unable to get to. Mm which was another strange thing that was going on. But by the time that it got to that Australia gig, I just had, my body had just stopped working completely and I had no choice but just to not go. Now I actually hear a lot of stories about other artists, similar things happening. And that's made me feel not so bad about it. I've heard lots of stories about people just turning up at the airport and being like, no, I'm not, I I actually am done. I'm spent and I, I can't, I can't go. But I think for me, 
you know, I, I think what we needed to change about the band, as I said to the boys, I was like, if we want longevity, we can't let that happen ever again. All that can be seen as a failing of not going on that plane. I mean, that's a strength, right? Because you kind of advocate for yourself and you have to because no one else is going to do it for you. Um, mm. You know, and uh, and I think that just happens as women anyway. <laughs> mm. So you go on Truth is the Beautiful Thing and it's such a beautiful album, I feel. And I think it kind of encapsulates everything you guys like now with hindsight we're going through, like with Bones of Ribbon talking about, you know, the difficulties of a band on the road and then Hell to the Liars, which I love as well, mm. which is just kind of like taking in politically what's mm. going on around you and then kind of just filtering it through your own sensibility as a band. And also yeah. that's a time when you're touring that album, you see America almost at, at its worst. It's at its most divisive. Mm. But how did the kind of second experience of um, touring Truth is a Beautiful Thing, was that different from the first for you? I think that whole tour and that album felt, a, a little bit rushed, maybe, to me. Um, I think mm. I thought that I had healed my... I still didn't really understand what fibromyalgia was then as well, just to just to say. Fibromyalgia is a chronic condition that causes intense pain. Doctors don't know its root cause. As a result, those who suffer from it often go through years of debilitating pain before they are given the correct diagnosis. Researchers believe that stress and other traumatic events can contribute to its root cause. Hannah believes that the stress from her intense stage fright and of the constant touring all had an impact on her. Lady Gaga drew attention to it in the documentary Gaga 5 Feet 2. She's also had to cancel world tours due to it. And at the moment, there is no cure for fibromyalgia. And so I, I, I wasn't actually still in the best place really on that tour. But it is interesting that you talk about those songs because now those songs I can see are such a part of a stepping stone to other songs on this third album. And um, they were probably very important turning points as well. Hannah found herself faced with some of the same problems again. But there was work to be done and Truth is a Beautiful Thing went to number one on the UK charts. The album's arresting lead single, I'll Be Rooting For You, functions as a sort of mantra for the support we can give to people when they're going through challenging times. It has echoes of Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You, but hits differently with Hannah's stunning contralto voice. It's a testament to Hannah's strengths as a vocalist, lyricist and songwriter, but also to the band in their decision to leave it stripped back, allowing her vocals to truly shine. It's such an amazing song for me. And I heard that you wrote it kind of a cappella in the shower almost. And did the melody come to you? Did the words come to you? I mean, what was it? I mean, how did it, how does that even work? <laughs> So it was in the shower. You've, you've, yeah, you've got it accurate. Really? Yeah. I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm not thinking about stuff too much, melodies, I don't really know where, where they come from. It's a complete mystery. But that was definitely like the melody came first and it developed over 
a period of time and then I wrote the words ah. afterwards. But when I played it to the boys, it was a cappella. I think I just wow. like sung it to them in in a room kind of thing and <laughs> they must have made their hair stern. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm and, actually not sure. I think we've been in a band together for so long. I'm not sure if it did. I think they were just like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah add some. Next. <laughs> well, I'll add some strings to it. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I'm sure they, hopefully they were. <laughs> with with um, the second album, you said that you write lyrics and top lines and it's a group effort and there's no leaders and there's loads of interviews where the three of you say that there's no leader. But at the same time, with mm. California soil, you've assumed this position of leader. And I understand you steered the whole album in a decidedly kind of more f- feminist or female-centric route. Um, and like you said, you know, mm. you were talking about fibromyalgia. And uh, those are just things that don't get discussed. Because, well, that's the complicated world of women's health as well, which I think, um, I, I do think that we're kind of trained to definitely feel like we're supposed to not get sick or be sick and we're supposed to kind of keep that stuff to ourselves yeah minimize our pain mm. I think it's like 70% of people who have fibromyalgia are women and I'm pretty sure as well that more women get autoimmune diseases than men which I mm. always find really interesting so for you what changed what sort of told you okay that's it enough of this bullshit I'm going to change my mm. you know my team my manager, my PR people, mm. and just go in a different direction. It it was, yeah, it was kind of a difficult one because, I mean, we are a band and I, there are bands where, you know, there are female vocalists, but they're more kind of like guest vocalists in a way. Um, I think I felt like things had just become slightly over-democratic in a way and... I kind of thought to myself, well, when I wrote Wasting My Young Years, that wasn't really a democracy. Mm. And I think there are some songs that are a democracy, but there are others that aren't. And I don't think that as a band we could have kept going if I didn't make this album. Maybe our fourth album will be different and our fifth one might be different. But this album, I was like, I can't actually say anything other than what I'm saying. So I can't make myself, I can't, I can't quiet that side of myself. So if we're going to do it, then this is the way it has to be. <laughs> but they were okay with it. So you can tell like from the interviews that they've done, what's your relationship to California because you have it in the title and I know you've been here and you've toured here and you've worked with Greg Kirsten and people who mm. are, are here but what's your relationship to it? Um, it's like one of the most beautiful places I've ever 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 been and I mean I love it I love coming to California I love having brunch in LA in the sun I just it is incredible I think There are a couple of reasons I chose that word for that song, which is that I think that there was a moment where I was in California where I really felt not myself. And that song is about finding yourself again. So what about the actual album itself, the way you've made it? You know, it's Mm. very, very cinematic. I mean, that's always Mm. been a part of your sound, right? But Mm. it's almost like a film. You know, you have to listen from the top to bottom 
And, uh, and you know, everyone's like streaming and everyone can have that one top hit on Spotify. And, uh, and it's really kind of like an artistic statement and a testament to the craft that you guys still want to do an album. Thank you. Uh, Right. And I love the way you have that intro. Like in my head, it's epic. I see like the Godfather, you know, <laughs> but instead of like Italian vineyards, it's California, maybe Napa yeah. or Sonoma. So take me behind that process. I, I, I think you kind of said it. I think it it kind of is this inspired by a kind of it's almost like a Western film. I get that. I get some spaghetti Western guitar riffs yeah. in some of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. With that intro, I'd actually had that melody in my head for years. And it was so frustrating because I was like, where are we going to use this melody? And then on this album, I was like, that's it. I just know that's going to be the intro and we have to make that and arrange it with strings. And, you know, it's it's really nice that you said that because we do still believe in the album. And I think we will always be an album group. Um, so it was important for us to bookend the album with an intro and a, an outro. Where was your head at? at when you wrote California Soil, the actual song? So that was one of the first songs that we wrote together. Um, that was kind of me and... Because our songwriting comes in pairs, I think. So that was me and mm. Dan quite early on in the process. And um, he was very nervous about playing me that. I think it took him like mm. 20 minutes to get the courage to press play and he kept on making excuses for it and said that I'd probably hate it and then he played it and I just thought it was just one of the best things that I'd ever heard and I wrote a top line I think within you know half an hour and um, sometimes the music evokes such strong imagery in me I think Californian soil just kind of slipped out but then from that I then kind of that then embodies other lyrics that then came later and a story was crafted around that. The story that comes through in the songs of Californian Soil is of a band coming of age and with a strong woman as its figurehead. Throughout their career, Hannah had experienced countless instances of misogyny and microaggressions that had chipped away at her confidence. But with Californian Soil... She wasn't shying away from showing her vulnerabilities anymore for fear of being called weak or for showing her strengths and then being labelled a diva or difficult. Everybody's got their own idea of right among the ones who get broken. I worry that one day you'll go missing. And who will notice when you're missing there's something kind of hip-hop about it yeah. you know the way it's got that kind of thing so I wonder if Dot was the one you partnered on that um but uh and that line about the drama mama yeah yeah I, I love that but who who were you talking about I worry that one day you'll go missing is that 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 other part of yourself yeah I think I think so I I think I worried about all three of us I think what I was seeing in the music industry I think I worried about all three of us for different reasons at various points. And, but definitely I think that chorus, you know, sometimes I listen back to our music and I'm like, 
I have to kind of psychoanalyze them myself because I'm not really sure where they come from. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I was kind of missing maybe at that point within myself. But it is also a commentary on, I think, the industry and all the things that can go wrong. The song has pointed lyrics referencing someone who sees themselves as a saviour but won't pay people their worth. And there are other lines, like a real mister with that jacket on, the girls are coking, the ones you've been provoking. Someone who's a suit that tears women down until they finally succumb to addictions. In the bridge, Hannah sings, I'd love to see you, happy again, a love beside you, a house full of friends. That's not easy for anyone constantly on the road. And I think I think there's a big pressure for young men to be very rock and roll. And some some young men aren't. And um, that's a whole other very strange part of the industry that I can't really understand. Um, you know, it's seen as being very cool, but I'm not really sure it is. <laughs> For a long time, sex, drugs and rock and roll has been synonymous with the lifestyle of a rock star or touring musician. These days, there is an unwillingness with many musicians to indulge in that kind of access. Think about the number of stories you read about artists who kick their addictions, clean up and are now doing the best work, rather than stories of them thrashing hotel rooms. There has been a shift more artists and bands are also discussing issues that weren't considered rock and roll back in the day. Themes like mental health, toxic masculinity, social justice. With the Me Too movement, many women have also called out the sexism and misogyny in the industry and have begun to also take back the reins of their careers. Hey Now was featured on Normal People mm. recently. And I wanted to bring this up because it's something interesting about this story. It's another instance of like a young woman writing something powerful, telling a story from a woman's perspective, but without diminishing what it means to be a man. Because I, I feel like even like Connell's character, did you watch the whole series? Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I was obsessed with it. And I feel like he's even the male characters have like shades and nuance. It's just sort of like so rich. And I feel like it's this kind of zygus that's going on. Is There's a kind of collective unconscious here of just like women coming to the fore and, you know, taking their proper place and not being shy about like just standing in their power, mm. you know. So... How did you feel when you heard the song on Normal People? Did you know they had um, licensed it? Yeah, I think it was the arty remix of Hey Now, which has an interesting story in itself because that started off as a bootleg remix of our ah. song that then did better than any other remix I think that we've ever had. So it was then made into an official one. Um, yeah. And I just rem remember feeling so moved that it was still you know, that our music was still relevant enough to be played on a show like Normal People that was just so cutting edge. And so that was actually, that was the highlight of, of the pandemic for me, was that. <laughs> nice. How do you feel about the response you've been getting? Is it harder to discern during a pandemic or is it easier? So at the start, it was really, really hard to discern. And I was pretty worried because we put a couple of songs out and 
I mean, the music industry has changed so much anyway. You can sell loads of tickets live, but not have a great streaming, or you can have amazing streaming and not sell tickets. But now that we're sort of leading into the album and we've been doing lots of interviews and it, it does feel like this album is actually connecting in a way that maybe our previous albums haven't done, which is really amazing for me. Trust Your Instincts is the advice Hannah now gives to other women. And in trying to call out these systemic problems in the music industry, London Grammar has still managed to make art. With Californian soil, they've expanded the band's sound beyond the moody palette they do so well. With the help of producer George Fitzgerald, Baby It's You and Lose Your Head are bright euphoric bangers, sonically aligned with the band's new step change. I was listening to a George Fitzgerald interview mm -hmm. and he was talking about this concept of embracing errors and imperfections mm -hmm. when he creates music. So did you see any instance of that when you worked with him? I mean, we actually, with those two songs, it was kind of interesting. We, we weren't in the studio with him. We just sent him the songs and what came back was so perfect. Um, but I definitely think within our music... I think within this album, there are a lot of flaws in lots of other ways. But I can't say that what he did was flawed. I think that what he did was exceptionally sympathetic to the song. And I mean, he's an incredible... I, I since have worked with him in the studio and he is an incredible, humble character. Mm. Kind of a genius, really, I think. Yeah, there are definitely flaws on the record, for what sure. What do you think is a flaw in the record for you? But you've decided to keep it there? I mean, most of the vocals are recorded on not a very good microphone in Dan's bedroom. But I just, when I go into a big fancy studio, it just is not quite right. And I can't seem to get the same vibe. And so, yeah, there are still vocals that I listen to that I'm like, oh, that's probably not very good, but um, it's okay. Whatever. I have to let it, let it go now. Yeah. I mean... As a listener, obviously you don't get it. Even when I'm wearing good headphones, I don't hear that, of course. But I can understand from your perspective. But having you saying mm. that about being in a studio, I have heard that from young women as well. Like, you know, when you go into a studio and you're trying to bear your heart out and you're supposed, and this is mm. quite cold and there's like men behind the boards pushing buttons and just sort of telling you do it better or do it like this, do it like that, you know. And just the whole space is not geared up for you to pour your heart out. <laughs> no, it's so true. So, maybe that is what it is. I didn't didn't think of that, but maybe that is what it is. Yeah, or sometimes like uh, someone was saying to me that they were, they wrote the song in their bedroom about like this heartbreak, and then they were just given a stool to sit in the middle of a studio, a very cold basement in New York. She couldn't even hold the guitar properly because the stool was like weird. She couldn't put her feet up anywhere, and. And then yeah. they're told to redo it. And then in the end, she was in tears. And she was like, I just, oh. I just can't do this, you know. But you have to, like, <laughs> yeah. find a way to do it. So, it, you know, that it is that. There is something about the lots of the way mm. studios are built are, like, for, you know, for men. Um, so for Lose Your Head. So that's an older song. And why did you decide to kind of go back and... Uh, put that song on this album because I think you've said it's about a relationship with someone who's got a Machiavellian streak so for me mm. I have all kinds of ideas in my head why <laughs> that song is there but for you why is that song there I think personally I, I've just had experiences that I'll always go back to 
I think that they give me such wealth that I will probably, it's kind of a rumination. Maybe it's very, very unhealthy. And there are certain things I probably should really let go. Um, (laughs) I am in a very happy relationship now, but you know, the ones that just piss you off, they just, they just always piss you off. And you, there's always stuff that you can still say, but I also sometimes with the music, I like, I think I said this earlier as well. I have quite a big group of girlfriends and, um, we share everything. That's like our whole relationship is based on that. So sometimes there's an element of me telling somebody else's story as well. It just so happens that there's a similarity between me and that person. And then so you take that into the studio and you share it with the boys. And then how does it get put together for that particular song? So I think for that song, I'd written, I'd kind of written it on the piano. And I think, again, I'm pretty sure I was with Dan and and we mocked together a very strange sounding demo. I mean, the initial demo of that song sounds bizarre. And then Dot came and put some magic on and then George Fitzgerald put magic on and it became a dance track. But then with the lyrics, I never say to the boys, so this song, I've got an idea and it's about this. Like, it's a very private thing and it's funny. They never really ask me. That's interesting. Yeah, they never really ask me. Or like, maybe like once they're like, so Dan, I, I can kind of remember Dan once being like, so what is this song about? But I don't think they would, they dare really ask. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the first time they're hearing it is if you're sitting in an interview together, the three of you and they're like, mm. oh, so that's what that's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Call Your, Call Your Friends because it's got... Um, is it Dot's vocals on it as well? There's a, some kind of backing vocals there. Uh, no, that's me. <gasps> that's I'm just why singing, I had to ask. I'm just singing in a very low, manly, manly voice, maybe, oh my God. in the back, yeah. That's good. I'm glad I asked it because I was like, <laughs> is that his vocals? Because I see him sometimes on stage singing with you. Um, mm. And then um, a lot, it's a feeling. It's a very, very direct song. For me, it's about that misogyny. And then on a grander scale, it's almost like a personification of like Mother Earth, of Gaia, you know. What is that feeling that you're actually referring to when you say, Lord, it's a feeling? I I think it is really, I you know, I just, I love women and I relate to women so much. And I have, I am the kind of friend that if like a friend has gone through a breakup, sometimes I will cry if I see them cry. And I think there is something very mother nature about that. Um, I know that's how I feel. And that kind of is what that song is saying. I think it is that feeling of just being like, I just know exactly what that that girl is going through. And it's it's kind of about gaslighting, really. Mm. You know, when women are just made, they're worn down, they become so insecure and then sometimes they're kind of, you know, it's easy to make out like they're crazy or they're being dramatic or they're overreacting. And that is what that song is about. And it's just about being like, yeah, I know that feeling and I know what's going on. So brings me to the last question about the album, which is my favorite track on the album is without a doubt, America. Oh, amazing. Okay. And I hope that you find it all that you need. Hope that you stay young and wild and free. You know, I think sonically it's got like a Jeff Buckley kind of feel about it and Daniel's guitar. Mm. But what a powerful way to end the album, you Thank know. You. And all the parties they fade and yes, my licks will go away and I'll just be left here in America. But she never had a home for me. I mean, 
it's amazing and just resonates with me on so many levels. But different bands reflect on the times through their own artistry and aesthetic. But for you to write a track like America and call it America, because, you know, Americans aren't the best at getting nuance, especially if people are just looking at it at face value. So it's like it still takes a bit of guts to write a, a song like that mm. and put it out there. Was yeah. What was that process for you like? I, I It's funny you say that because I was told that I shouldn't be singing about America by someone. Oh, they were like, it's not a good idea. And I was like, but... I'm not saying anything bad about Americans or American people. It's just a metaphor and they'll understand that, I'm sure. And I still think that. I think it's fine. Um, but maybe I'm going to be proved horribly wrong. But that song for me, that was, along with Californian Soil, I, I wrote that song and I was like crying at the time. I think that was when I was like, oh God, you know, can I really continue I just was going through a bad time personally, I think, and wasn't really sure if I was cut out from the music industry. And I wrote that song to say goodbye to all the songs that I thought I wouldn't write. And um, I, but then it made me want to make an album. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did. And I just think, yeah, I, you know, it's about my my personal life experience and I just don't think that I could say it in any other way and I don't think you can make good art without taking risks and I think at the end of the day I think people will understand that it's a metaphor and what is it a metaphor for it's a metaphor about my own personal loss of an American dream that actually has nothing to do with America but just saying goodbye to something that I thought was Maybe it's a part of myself, you know, how things you kind of have to break down before you build yourself back up again. And I think that that's what it's about. And yes, my looks so go away. I'll just be She never had a home for me. You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Hannah Reed from London Grammar. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teo Blocky, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azane Samari with media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.